This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Did you know that cyclists who ride a minimum of three hours a week have a 28% lower risk of all-cause mortality than non-cyclists? Shouldn't your life insurance premiums reflect that? Health IQ is an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like cyclists, runners, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com mtb. Or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. Stay tuned for more information partway through this episode. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Last episode, we began our dive into the topic of e-mountain bikes, and we started with some perspective from the industry. Now, this episode will be about feedback and perceptions from not only those with trail associations around the world, but also the greater riding community. We'll also be looking at what various policies exist with a number of land managers. I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 37 of Frontlines. The topic of e-bikes can get some mountain bikers angry. So I thought I'd chat with not just any angry mountain biker, but the angry mountain biker, Will Nichols, host of the Angry Mountain Biker podcast. Hi, Will. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brent. Thanks for having me. Really uh, in, in looking forward to be on here. Yeah, I appreciate it. So I just wanted to kind of get your opinion and, and see where you kind of fell on, on the topic of e-bikes. Are you for them? Are you against them? What's, uh, what's your thoughts? Well, I think... Like a lot of mountain bikers, my first reaction to e-bikes on our trails is suspicion. You know, I've seen them at the events and festivals and demos. And you see these tricked out, high-end, full suspension mountain bikes. How can we let these things on the trail, right? And on a personal level, I don't want one. I really like the effort and work that it takes to mountain bike and the rewards that come from that. I mean, I think in general, we try to over-convenience our lives. It's kind of the leaf blower syndrome. You know, get a motorized machine when a rake and broom actually work just fine. But the bigger picture is that um, these can be great recreation for a lot of people. And I just, after thinking about it a lot, reading about it, and actually riding an e-bike, I actually don't think they're really going to be a big problem on our local trails. I think I think there are some self-limiting factors to it becoming a problem. You know, batteries tend to run out and not many people are going to be willing to risk becoming stranded miles and miles from their parking lot and having to ride a, a 40 or 50 pound bike out of the wilderness. I mean, I suppose that could become a different story if the manufacturers get these things down to weigh, you know, 32 pounds. But for right now, I'm just not seeing that there's going to be a huge influx of e-bikes on our trails. Now, what we're seeing here in the U.S., I know you're up in Canada, is that land managers are 
setting the rules for local trails. And generally, they treat them like motorized vehicles, which in most areas aren't allowed on wilderness and, and park trails. And that can vary according to who administers the, the area, of course. I mean, one thing related to that, I think it's really important that we as mountain bikers, we need to make sure our opinions are known so that you're you know, your local trail club and your local land managers know where you stand on the issue. Land managers may need education on what these things actually are and what they mean, what it would mean to have them on their trail. So it's really easy to complain about them. And, and you hear a lot of comments, you know, in, at, at group rides and stuff where uh, people are, are sort of ridiculing e-bikes. But if you, if you really want something to happen your way, you've got to be involved on the front lines of advocacy and, you know, show up at the meetings, the trail days, get the respect and trust of your local club members and land managers, community, and, and then your opinion will really start to count towards it. You know, I, I also think that even if these things do get lighter and into the backcountry, I'm not sure it's a bad thing. There are people that for whatever reason can't do a lot of strenuous pedaling pedaling on a bike. And if it gets them out on the trail, frankly, I'm all for it. I mean, I, I want to see more bikers, more trails, more volunteers and grow this entire community because then it means we have more of a voice, more demand for open space, more demand for trails, people living a healthier lifestyle. And so I don't really see this as a big problem for mountain biking in general, especially if we make sure our voice is heard, we make sure that land managers know what we want and what to expect from e-bikes. And I think that that pretty much sums up the way I feel about this issue. Now, you know, if we if we think about e-bikes also as in a bigger picture, the, the percentage of e-bikes that are going to be mountain bike and off-road bikes is probably pretty small. And I think these things have the have the potential to even transform some cities where we're just clogged with traffic. And if we could get five or 10 people out of a hundred to ride their e-bike to work, you know, maybe they've got a seven or eight mile commute just far enough that riding a bike becomes like really riding a bike. It becomes an hour long thing for them in the morning and they're just not really into biking. You know, think of what that would mean in, in crowded cities and getting more cars off the road, getting more people involved on bikes, living a healthier life. So overall, I'm, I'm pretty excited over, to see what happens over the next decade with these machines and, and where it can take biking. Yeah, it's, it's something that uh, from, the, from the bike commuting end of things, I'm always so happy to see, you know, there's a, a bridge that I, I'll ride over when I go into the city and, and it's, it's a bit of a pain to pedal up this bridge. And once you kind of get over it and down to the other side, after that, it's, it's smooth, flat trails from, from there on out or, or paved paths. And every once in a while I'll get passed by somebody who's dressed to the nines in a suit or a nice outfit pedaling past me very gently, not breaking a sweat at all on an e-bike. And it's like, this is great. If that's what it took for you to get out of your car and to ride to work, I'm all for it. You know, would I probably want to be in that position maybe at the moment, but you know, I'm, I appreciate the exercise that I'm getting, you know, later on down the road, but it, it is pretty cool to, to kind of see that. Yeah, and it is a lot of effort to commute on a bike. I did it for a few years, and you're trying to maybe carry a laptop, maybe some extra clothes. You've got the weather to contend with. And if that 
you know, and, and to be clear, the type of bikes we're talking about, they're, they're, you don't just twist a throttle and go. That's a motorcycle or moped. These are pedal assist. You've still got a pedal. And there is some effort involved that might mean you can carry that laptop, carry your homework, carry a little more food back and forth, you know, back home from the grocery store. So I overall, I'm really I'm really supportive of e-bikes. And I, I do think the big takeaway for mountain bikers, though, is that land managers and your local your local club really need to be involved so that we I don't think we just want to see a massive influx of people spinning out their their high-powered e-bikes and hacking them to be more like motorcycles on the local trail. But if we can get more people out there, the people that are going to get these things generally aren't your super hardcore mountain bikers that are just looking for a thrill to even go faster. But they're going to be people that maybe you know, are intimidated by the strenuous nature of biking, and now they have a chance to get out there. And Look, I, see, I know that there's probably a lot of mountain bikers that disagree. And what I've heard is a lot of sort of ridiculing of it. But I think a lot of that just comes down to a stylistic preference. Like me, I, I want the effort. I kind of look at it as cheating to use a battery and a motor to help me up a hill. But really, that's just almost a matter of style. Like riding a fat bike is a style of mountain biking or a rigid or a single speed or whatever type of bike you ride. It conforms to some stylistic ethical framework that you believe in. But that doesn't mean e-bikes are inherently bad on the trails. Well, well, I appreciate uh, your opinion and, and sharing it with, with us. And, uh, and thanks for just taking the time to, uh, to be on the show today. Brent, really appreciate this opportunity to talk about it. And let me quickly just plug my show. If you want to find out about my podcast, find everything you need to know about it at angrymountainbiker.com. And Brent, thanks again for having me on. Cool. And we'll include that uh, link in the show notes to the podcast as well. Great. Thanks a lot, Brent. Once again, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ saves its customers up to 33% because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. If approved, Health IQ will use information like race and event registrations and your ride log information from websites like Strava, Trailforks, or MapMyRide to secure you with a better rate on life insurance. Just like a clean driving record will get you lower car insurance, Health IQ helps those living an active, healthy lifestyle pay less for life insurance. And Health IQ doesn't just generate leads and forward you to an insurer. They walk you through the entire journey, from answering any initial questions to starting an application, going through underwriting, all the way to when your policy is signed and official. Learn more and get a free quote at HealthIQMTB or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. As advocates and trail associations, I think the biggest factor for this discussion is that, for the most part, we don't set policy. That task is up to the land manager. And so let's look at three major land managers in the United States. The Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, and the National Park Service. Now, this information comes from two main sources, and I've tried to get the most up-to-date information there was. 
The first is the Electric Mountain Bicycle Regulations for Natural Surface Trails. It's courtesy of IMBA and their Trail Solutions Program and was prepared for the Bicycle Product Suppliers Association. And the second source is courtesy of People for Bikes and their e-bike policy and laws page on their website, which includes details for each state. I've included links to both of these pages in the show notes. For all three land managers, the current policy for e-mountain bike use on natural surface trails is as follows. Quote, e-mountain bikes are allowed on trails open to other motorized uses. They are not allowed on non-motorized trails. And as classified as motorized under existing regulations, end quote. Now, when it comes to potential updates to e-mountain bike regulations, here's what IMBA has to say about each land manager, starting with the Forest Service. Quote, the interpretation of existing rules that e-mountain bikes are classified as motorized has been made public, mostly at the forest level, through posting at trailheads and on websites. There are no plans to update regulations at this time, but the Forest Service is open to revisiting the regulations as use increases and more information becomes available. End quote. Now for the National Park Service, quote, existing code of federal regulations have clear definitions of motor vehicles and bicycles that clearly place e-mountain bikes as motorized. There are no plans to update regulations at this time, but the National Park Service is open to revisiting the regulations as use increases and more information becomes available, end quote. And finally, the BLM or Bureau of Land Management Quote, the interpretation of existing rules that EMTBs are classified as motorized has been made public, mostly at the regional level through websites and postings at trailheads. There are no plans to update regulations at this time, but the BLM is open to revisiting the regulations as use increases and more information becomes available, end quote. Now, when we look at each individual state, there's a bit of a variation from that. Currently, out of 50 states, 19 have an e-mountain bike policy. And of those 19, 11 allow e-mountain bikes on some trails. Now, currently, 8 states have an official policy that consider Class 1 e-bikes to be motorized vehicles and they're prohibited from non-motorized trails. The states that do allow e-mountain bikes on some trails are California, Colorado, Delaware, Florida, Louisiana, Minnesota, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, and Utah. Most recently, last week, Washington state legislators ruled that Class 1 e-mountain bikes are to be treated as motorized vehicle when it comes to soft surface trail. Four states are currently working on a policy, Connecticut, Michigan, Oregon, and Wisconsin. So this means that 27 states, over half, do not have an official policy and are not currently working on one. And again, further highlighting, currently all three federal land managers say that e-bikes are motorized, but all three of them, according to IMBA and People for Bikes, are open to revisiting this regulation. Now, I wanted to zoom out of the United States a little bit, so I did take a look at Australia and more specifically the state of South Australia. They have deemed that pedal assist e-bikes are simply bicycles and as such are allowed on any trails that regular mountain bikes are allowed on. Now, across Australia, there's some variation in other states, but uh, some of those states are just simply working on a policy right now. 
I have spoke with a number of people who do work for various land managers all over the world. I'm not going to name anyone specifically as they didn't represent their employer necessarily and were speaking to me with their land manager hats off and and their mountain bike helmet on instead. One person expressed excitement with the potential e-mountain bikes could mean for staff patrolling recreation areas. Uh, Someone else stated that, quote, elite riders are doing 25 kilometers an hour anyways, so e-mountain bikes, which are speed limited correctly, aren't any more dangerous or doing any more harm, end quote. And another said, quote, e-mountain bikes aren't skidding any more than kids who have been watching enduro shreddits, end quote. Now, looking back at the United States, there are some flexibility within state policies allowing e-mountain bikes as OPDMDs, otherwise known as Other Power Driven Mobility Devices. Now, we'll touch on that a bit more with my next guest, Christian Jackson. He's the volunteer manager for the Boone Area Cyclists in Boone, North Carolina, and he's here to help us better understand the perceptions of mountain bikers on the topic. Hi, Christian. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me. This past fall, you and a colleague did a a pilot study on e-bike use in your riding area. And what was the reason for doing this? Well, our park, uh, Rocky Knob Park in Boone, is managed by the the local cycling club, Boone Area Cyclist. And we've just been getting a lot of questions about e-mountain bikes and whether we were going to allow them at the park or not. And, And I hadn't really thought much about it until I started seeing some and yeah, I was kind of alarmed at the speed <laughs> initially that these things were traveling, especially uphill. And I hadn't really, you know, really put much thought into, you know, should we allow them or not? And then just kind of made sense to uh, kind of reach out to a colleague here at Appalachian State and just kind of do a, a, a user's perception study to see what people think. Uh, so I felt like, you know, having one person make a decision or even a, a small group of people make a decision might might not be the best way to to go about deciding whether we allow these things or not. So that was kind of the the rationale for for starting this. You know, and I when we started the study, I hadn't ridden an e mountain bike, so that was is all kind of new um, new for me. How many respondents did you have? Uh, usable respondents, we had sixty four complete usable. We had about one hundred and twenty, but had to get rid of get rid of a handful. And what did you learn? Well, we learned that in general, people were pretty, pretty supportive of wanting to include e-mountain bikes for folks that had um, different condition um, needs, disabilities uh, specifically. We found that a lot of people were really concerned about the environmental impact. And then primarily the main concern, which we kind of suspect anyway, was the, the user conflict leading into that, you know, that was kind of the, our thought was, was, you know, maybe environment, you know, maybe the, what these things are doing to the trails might, might be an issue, but definitely if you have an open trail system with people going in different directions and hikers and, you know, kids riding, and then somebody on, on an e-mountain bike, then that could cause a lot of conflict. So when we're, when we're talking about reducing barriers to, to certain folks that uh, mountain bikers seem to be very supportive of, uh, e-mountain bikes and, and, you know, whether, whether it's an adaptive mountain bike or whether it's somebody who, who requires a pedal assist, uh, because of some sort of a, a disability, mountain bikers are supportive of that. It sounds like. In our study, yes, we had like 52% of the respondents thought that disability should be a factor for consideration. 
Now, when we talk about disability, or included in that is is um, like, what about uh, aging mountain bikers? So, uh, folks that that are getting into their later years and just don't have that fitness, or maybe are coming back from injuries. Um, you know, I've heard great stories of of people, you know, in their their seventies and eighties who want to keep mountain biking, but just are not able to keep mountain biking. And, and an e mountain bike kind of allows them to do that. Was there any kind of response to that in this study? Well, we had, you know, we we talked about health. We asked about health conditioning as well. You know, and that I think that's you're getting into really interesting areas that most people do do want to support this. And, and then it becomes into a management strategy. You know, we hear, we do hear stories. We see examples of, you know, not only people coming back from injuries, but, you know, uh, parents being able to ride with their kids, for instance, you know, we see, see examples of that. And so I, I think there is support for this. And the response then becomes, well, how, if we support this, then how do we manage it? Like, how do we manage a trail system so that we do not get the conflicts, but we, 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 we promote, we promote cycling. So obviously, you know, a limited uh, data set and, and limited respondents, but um, has has there been any kind of shift of policy or, or, or maybe even just a, an initial shift in thought by the, the organization on, on how to handle this? Yeah. So the, the main thing that comes out with the, we ask about rules and, you know, what kind of rules would you want to see applied to e-bikes? The kind of the, the main thing that jumped out was uh, directionality of trails. And we've gone through a process this past year at our park of really looking at our trails and thinking about directionality and, and what, how people are actually using the trails and, and trying to reflect the usage, current usage of how we intended it when, when it was built. And so we definitely have a, an approach that we're, we're going to be looking at in terms of making cer- certain trails you know, one way only in, with, with signage. Now, what about uh, different types of e-bikes? Because this is something that we we always kind of lump a lot of uh, a lot of different types of uh, bikes into into that one category. Are we just referring to pedal assist, or was there a bit of a discussion about uh, throttle uh, versions of these e-bikes? You know, we didn't the pilot study. It was just the pedal assist bikes that we we're looking at, and we we presented this our initial findings at the national conference this, this fall. And we had the large, this larger discussion came up, you know, you know, what, what are the different types and what are we willing to support and not support? And, you know, for us, this was just about the, the pedal assist variety of bike. Any big surprises for you that came out of this? You know, I, uh, I was fortunate to get on a bike for a while to try one out just to, cause I, I wanted to have a, have the experience to see what I thought and, uh, giant bicycles was very gracious in, in loaning a, one of their their e mountain bikes, and honestly was surprised at how much fun it was. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was a it was a different kind of fun. And the main thing that jumped out in the first ride was that the the skill set involved with with biking with you know standard mountain biking versus an e mountain bike is it's different. You know this this is a heavier machine. The especially at the higher settings, you know pedaling uphill becomes uh, takes on different sets of challenges, you know? And so I, part of our kind of our further lines of inquiry then is you know, to look at, um, the rider skill level and, you know, what this might, how this might affect decision-making with this. Cause I definitely see, you know, novice mountain bikers getting on an e-mount bike and it's on certain trails and get in situations that they would not get into on a, on a standard mountain bike. 
what other things moving forward are you uh, are you hoping to kind of explore? We are looking to take this pilot study um, once we get it published and, and take it to a to a larger larger sample. Ideally, we'd like to go uh, national with it if possible. We have a few lines of inquiry about the actual the physical, not just the skill part, but the physical, like the heart rate comparisons and such that we might we might look at as well. We did an initial, very quick initial look at heart rate and speed for a standard mountain bike and an e-mountain e bike on the same trail. And that was kind of a fun, fun experiment. But it's definitely not not scientific at this point. The, the surprise there was that heart rate on an e-mountain bike um, was not that much lower hmm. than the standard bike. Wow. Um, and, and it was also the heart rate was more consistent. So it didn't have the peaks the peaks and valleys uh, that we get when we, we mountain bike. So it was a more steady, steady heart rate, which is kind of interesting to think about. I see that having benefits for, for folks that, uh, that have cardiac issues. Correct. Uh, so, so being able to get out, ride and not on the road without having those extreme um, kind of peaks and, and dips of, of cardiac activity. Right. Right. You know, some of the, the other kind of outcomes of this is that through this discussion, a lot of folks were enthusiastic about the having an e-bike to go do trail work, you know, being able to haul in more tools, you know, further into a trail system, um, which is definitely has its advantages. Interesting. I mean, the more the more we learn about this and, and the more that I've kind of dug into it, the more my original opinion has, has softened and, uh, and you kind of start to see a little bit of that, that bigger picture. Um, Rocky knob is, uh, so it's a bike park. So very specific to mountain bike users. Are there hikers in that area as well? Or is it kind of bike only? There are hikers. I would say the, the, the vast majority are mountain bikers. We, we get a good, good number of trail runners and, and, um, families that explore like the, the lower part of the trail system. We, we don't have a lot of, of, um, biker to rider or, or hiker to, uh, rider conflict, um, because of the way the trail is designed. But, you know, obviously the concern is the bike might, might factor, start to factor in, into that. Yeah, absolutely. Something to look at as you, as you go a little bit further for sure. Yep. Can folks have a look at this? Like, is, is some of this information available online? We do not have it. This is the the, st the study is uh, the pilot study. We're looking to publish this spring or submit for publication this spring. Um, folks could contact me f for a, a copy of our, our presentation that we did at a conference. And if folks are looking to to help, what can they do? Locally, you know, I think we as a as a, a riding community we have a lot of work to do. Um, our, our park is a kind of a microcosm of our, of our larger community. We're situated right next to Pisgah National Forest. And so there are a lot of issues that are, that are currently happening. I think the thing that locals need to do is get, actually get involved um, with at whatever level they can, whether it's trail work or advocacy or going to meetings. Um, I think that's true probably for, for most communities. It's, it's time, to, time to do things now and, and, and stop waiting for others to do it for us. Well, Christian, thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Appreciate it. A few big takeaways from this. 
It would seem that when we're discussing e-mountain bikes in the context of allowing differently abled individuals to access the sport, many mountain bikers feel supportive. And when it comes to aging or health concerns, many understand the value of e-mountain bikes. But unfortunately, the enforcement of this, especially with the latter, is next to impossible. We really are left with a blanket policy one way or the other. And if we're dealing with a blanket ban, then perhaps we can have some exceptions when dealing with adaptive mountain bikes or visible disabilities, as that can be realistically managed and more easily enforced. But invisible disabilities provide a huge challenge. The second point brought up was directionality. And this is an interesting point and something that has come up as I collect audio for an upcoming episode on minimizing user conflict. And whether it's referring to e-bikes or not, directional trails can be a really smart idea. It's not always possible. Something that I've really enjoyed playing around with over the last month is a new feature on Trail Forks that allows you to hover over the direction of a trail and see which percentage of riders prefer to ride it in that direction. For example, according to Trail Forks ride log data, one of the trails that I maintain is ridden down by only 51% of riders, and a beginner trail just uphill from that one is actually ridden uphill by 72% of riders. Oftentimes, our perceptions of how users ride our network can be way off, and if we have an opportunity to look at raw data, then it does a really good job of getting to the key information. Something else that was mentioned was the ability to go further. One of the ways that we as advocates, along with land managers, have been able to manage the inherent risks involved with the sport of mountain biking is by making harder trails and harder features further away from access points. A prime example can be seen in any network that follows the stacked loop model of a green loop allowing you to access the blue loop and subsequently the blue loop connecting to the black loop. E-mountain bikes have the potential to reduce this barrier. And that's something that I've seen in my winter world on my local mountains. I spend a lot of time over the winter teaching avalanche safety courses, and I'm seeing barriers for access being reduced, which is great from the perspective of getting more people outdoors. But when we as an outdoor recreation umbrella have been relying on those barriers to prevent certain people with limited experience from accessing more advanced terrain, whether it be more remote mountains or more technical trails, it ends up putting more onus on all of us to educate new users. Now, on the theme of new users, this is really the biggest driver for the cycling industry and and e-bikes. And when it comes to commuting, as mentioned during my discussion with Will Nichols, e-bikes are certainly the answer. But when it comes to mountain biking, I think many are missing a very important point. Mountain biking is hard. I don't mean physically, I mean technically. I spent seven years teaching mountain biking and overwhelmingly people got into the sport because they wanted to get fit or stay fit. I don't know how many times students would cite that they thought running sucked and mountain biking looked like more fun. Part of me feels like e-mountain bikes aren't going to bring anybody new into this sport. If fitness is the goal for anyone looking to get into the sport, e-bikes do the opposite, and they don't reduce the biggest barrier of them all. Mountain biking is hard. Now here's a voicemail from Eddie from Washington State. E-bikes are really not my thing, at least not yet, but you know, whatever. As long as they're respectful and not being Strava assholes. With that being said, I'll probably still scoff at the young and able-bodied e-bike user. I'm by no means fit, but that's a good reason to not take the easy way out. That's 
just my opinion, and by all means, feel free to do your own thing. It's supposedly a freeish country for now. <clears throat> I will say this, I'm fairly new to mountain biking. I grew up riding motocross and switched over to mountain biking about 10 years ago. I've never seen a group so critical or elitist about other people's gear or what they're riding as mountain bike users seem to be. Uh, my opinion is if, if you enjoy it and it gets you out on the trail and you're not hurting anybody else, go for it, man. Get out there. Have fun. Now, I also received a voicemail from a previous guest and friend of the podcast, Lance Peischer of the Bitterroot Backcountry Cyclists out in Montana. If you're not familiar or you don't recall, Lance and his Imba chapter have lost a ton of trails to proposed wilderness areas, and they've even gone as far as joining a lawsuit against the Forest Service. Here's Lance. First, let me say that you can take my opinions with a grain of salt. Here in my neck of the woods and not the beaten path of Montana, he bugs from mythical beasts. No one rides them, no one sells them, and no one is all that interested in trying one. My only experience was a couple of years ago at the Ember World Summit in Bentonville, and I sailed with a group of riders, one of whom had an e-bike. His passed around the hills and not passed her on everything else, but in the end it was clear I was working, that while I was riding harder, the type of bike he was riding on had no bearing on my experience. My perspective is based primarily on a decade of fighting frequently losing battle for continued access to backcountry single tracks here in Montana, arguing that bikes and motorized vehicles are fundamentally distinct. I don't know how many times I have seen the words mechanized and motorized tied together in an attempt to obfuscate the distinct differences between bikes and, motor and motorcycles and ATVs in an attempt to ban anything with wheels from trails. My concern is that those voices that argue that pedal-assisted e-bikes should be treated as conventional bikes, excluding trail access for all mountain bikers by making all of our arguments for trail access, the sweat involved, the sweat equity, the human-powered component moot. And this isn't just theoretical. The anti-bike forces are already jumping on e-bikes as another reason to ban bikes off all mountain bike trails. Most recently, the Friends of the Allegheny Wilderness in arguing about keeping bikes off the Tracy Ridge area in the Allegheny stated, once you've acknowledged that you can't tell the difference between the e-bike and the regular bikes, that's the end of the story. The agency can't allow any mountain bikes anywhere in the area because any one of them could be a motorized vehicle. In the end, when it comes to e-bikes, we need to be sure that advocating for e-bike access won't result in trail loss for all mountain bikers. I think Lance brings up one of the biggest concerns in all of this. As trail associations, we already have a hard enough time. The argument against mountain biking, those vocal minority that we're all too familiar with, they already have enough cannon fodder as it is. And now this. After working on these episodes, I realized I hadn't really given this topic much thought. I knew there were some great success stories, and I knew there were some legitimate concerns, but for the most part, I really just ignored it. And I think that might have been an effort to insulate myself, because now that I've spent the last few months peeling back the onion, I'm really bummed that this is where many, the industry specifically, see mountain biking going. I've always prided myself on human-powered, and not because I'm some elite athlete. In fact, quite the opposite. One year into fatherhood, and I'm now understanding just how a dad bod is created. I spent most of my limited free time this winter ski touring, avoiding chairlifts and just getting out for a hike. And as I've skied up various hills this winter, I've been grateful that an e-version of ski touring will never exist. 
In fact, I really don't want this winter to end. You know, maybe this is the year that I put down my bike and simply just embrace my passion for hiking and backpacking. But I've said this before, it was 12 years ago and I needed a new bike. I had destroyed my last one the previous summer and I just didn't have the money for a new bike. And I essentially resided in saying like, you know what, I'm giving up the sport. I'm just going to go hiking from now on. And well, what happened then? Well, I figured out a way to get a new bike and I spent the summer mountain biking because at the end of the day, I'm a mountain biker. I spoke with a number of people whose opinion is that e-mountain bikes are not mountain bikes. And after much soul searching, I think those are my sentiments too. But who really cares about my opinion? Look at where mountain bikes have come from and look where they've gone. And are you really surprised someone has finally attached a power-assisted motor to them? Whether we like it or not, and whether land managers allow them or not, e-mountain bikes are coming. And will it provide challenges for trail associations? Sure. Does the cycling industry care? Not really. But more and more people are becoming advocacy aware. And if e-mountain bikes are going to get more people into mountain biking, then all we can do is make sure they understand how trails are made and who maintains them. Our job doesn't change. We provide soft surface trails for the community. Next episode, we'll be hearing from Morgan Lamel. She's the e-bike campaigns manager at the Bicycle Product Suppliers Association and the People for Bikes Coalition. As we finish off the e-mountain bike discussion, I wanna think about what our role as the local trail association might be. Sure, it sounds like most land managers aren't there yet, but there's a number of smaller land managers like municipalities that will look to us as topic experts to help them build a policy. And we need to be ready for that. My plan for episode four of this discussion is to host a panel discussion of various trail association representatives from all over. I'm working on confirming who those representatives will be, and I will have more details next episode. If you're interested in joining in on the panel, then please contact me right away. I'm really happy with how the first panel discussion of the podcast went, but they do take some logistics to set up and record and not to mention edit. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can send me an email or audio file to FrontlinesMTB at gmail.com. You can get the show either on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or YouTube. However you listen to the show, make sure you give it a like and a review. It helps others find the show. Now, don't forget you can support the show via PayPal. Those donations are really important to keep this show going. You can find a link to that in the show notes, as well as links to the Frontlines Book Club, another great way to support the show. And there's also some e-bike resources from Imba and People for Bikes. I've also included a link to the Angry Mountain Biker podcast. It's my favorite mountain bike podcast, but hopefully it's just your second favorite mountain bike podcast. Have a listen and give Will a subscribe. As always, music is by Lee Rosevere, production notes by Jennifer Pride, and artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher Watson of BGW Creative. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.